This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our program is made possible with the support of our members and friends. If you'd like to make a donation or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that one can aid their own understanding of a Dharma talk, or Taisho, if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. So this is uh, the text for this morning will be from uh, Master Mumon's Gateless Gate, uh, the Mumon Khan. Uh, this is the 29th case in the book. And this is um, the flag and the wind. So the case reads like this. Need reading glasses. The wind was flapping. The temple. Uh, the wind was flapping the temple flag, and two monks started an argument. One said the flag moved. The other said the wind moved. They argued back and forth, but could not reach a conclusion. The sixth ancestor said, "It is not." The wind that moves, it is not the flag that moves, it is your honorable minds that move. The monks were awestruck. And then Muman's comment on this case. It is not the wind that moves, it is not the flag that moves, it is not your mind that moves. How do you see the ancestor? If you come to understand these matters deeply, you will see that these two monks got gold when buying iron. The ancestor could not withhold his compassion and courted disgrace. Mumon's verse on the case. Wind, flag, mind moving, all equally to blame. Only knowing how to open his mouth unaware of his fault in talking. So, so this, this koan, this case, is taken from the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Ancestor, um, the Sixth Chinese Ancestor, who is uh, very central in the Zen lineage. Uh, the Sixth Ancestor from Bodhidharma, who brought Zen and to China from 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 India, and the teaching was passed from teacher to student through five generations up into Hong Ren, and then his student Hui Neng, who this sixth ancestor is, uh, became the sixth. What they used to call patriarch which we, we try to abandon that term now, but the sixth ancestor. And then after that, um, the that kind of style of passing down Bodhidharma's robe and bowl and giving transmission just to one person was abandoned. Um, and um, many teachers came out of, you know, different lineages and things like that. But Hui Neng was born in... 638 and died in 713. So to give you a little context of when this was taking place. 
And so I think many of you are familiar with the story of Huineng, but I think it's worth talking about. And Huineng was a young man when he came across the Dharma for the first time. He was very poor. We're told he was illiterate, um, that he sold wood for a living to support his mother after his father had died. And he was selling wood one day when he heard a monk chant uh, the Diamond Sutra, and this very important sutra from the, from the Mahayana. And at that, he had a spontaneous enlightenment experience. He had no previous sitting experience whatsoever and came to enlightenment and then asked this monk um, where he heard this diamond sutra and and so this monk told him about hong ren who was the fifth ancestor and his teaching his monastery up on east mountain and huineng um, made his way there and so pulling from the platform sutra just to share a little bit about what he wrote about this time He says that um, he went to East Mountain and he was invited in to meet with the teacher. And he was asked, he said, Hong Jen asked me, where are you from? And why do you come to this mountain to make obeisance to me? He said, I replied, I'm from Lingnan, a commoner. I have come a long distance only not only to make obeisance to you. I am seeking no particular thing, but only the Buddha Dharma. The master then reproved me, saying, If you're from Ling Nan, then you're a barbarian. <laughs> How can you become Buddha? he asked him. I replied, although people from the south and people from the north differ, there is no north or south in Buddha nature. Although my barbarian's body and your body are not the same, what difference is there in our Buddha nature? And so the fifth patriarch listening to this, the fifth ancestor, immediately recognized that this young man had some sort of insight some kind of um, awareness of the Buddha Dharma. And, but being a commoner, he, um, he wasn't ordained. He wasn't a monk. And so he sent him to, the, to work in the kitchen, uh, pounding rice. And we're told that he did that for eight months, not even entering the zendo. And then it says in the story that unexpectedly one day, the ancestor called his disciples to come and he assembled them and said, you disciples making offerings all day, seek only the field of blessings, but you don't seek to get free from the bitter sea of birth and death. Your own self nature obscures the gateway to blessings. How can you be saved? This language here is very Christian. The translation here. So he asked all of them to return to their rooms and 
really to reflect on why they there were there practicing and to then create a verse based on what they understood the Buddha Dharma to be. And each of them went back. The, it says that um, they kind of all got together and all said, you know, we really don't understand the Dharma, but the head monk really does. So why don't we just let him write this verse? And we'll just abide by what he says. And so um, they, they did. He wrote this verse, uh, this, this head monk. And the head monk, in his own deliberations about what he was going to say, is quite interesting. He says this, The others won't present mine verses because I am their teacher. If I don't offer a verse, how will the ancestor estimate the degree of my understanding within my mind? If I do offer my mind to the ancestor with the intention of gaining... It is justifiable. However, if I am seeking the, the ancestorship myself, then I can, it cannot be justified. Then it would be like a common person usurping a saintly position. But if I don't offer my mind, then I cannot learn the Dharma. So you can see how he's struggling here. If I, if I present this, am I going to be seen? Am I really going to be uh, caught in gaining? trying to gain some kind of position here. So it, he was perplexed, it says. And at midnight, without letting anyone see him, he went to write his mind verse on the central section of the South Corridor Wall. And so the story goes on that the morning came and somebody came across his verse and they read it aloud and they all gathered around to to appreciate it. And the sixth or the fifth ancestor came in as well and read this verse and and this is what he said. The verse goes, the body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is the clear mirror. At all times we must strive to polish it and not let the dust alight. So the fifth ancestor read this verse and said out loud to the other monks that this was a very good verse. But privately, he thought to himself that this head monk really does not understand the Dharma. So this verse, the body is the Bodhi tree, the mind is like a clear mirror, at all times we must strive to polish it and let no dust alight. This is really in one way, it is, it's not bad. It's talking about daily practice, about the importance of clearing the mind, of using the breath, of using the koan to sweep the mind clear, to work on the afflictions that we all suffer from, to, to pull ourselves out of the... <clears throat> anxieties, the worries, the concerns that often we get drawn into. So it has a certain degree of usefulness, this teaching. And yet, it still misses something quite important. 
We're told in the story that Huinang couldn't read, but he was curious about this verse, and so he had somebody read it to him. And knowing that it wasn't all that the Buddha Dharma was about, had another monk jot down on the wall next to this verse his own verse. Because, of course, he couldn't write. And this is Huinang's response. He says, Bodhi originally has no tree. The mirror also has no stand. From the beginning, there is no thing. Where is there room for any dust? So we're told that the fifth ancestor saw this poem and knew it was Huinang, brought him to his room late at night, and offered to transmit the Dharma to him. And, but knowing that the other monks wouldn't understand why a lay person was given permission to spread the Dharma, was told he was told to leave, to take the robe and bowl with him, the signs of Dharma transmission, and to leave and to remain un, out of sight for many years. And so this... This story is quite central to Zen practice. And one of the reasons is, is that it really speaks to the, um, that within the Buddha Dharma, there is no place for hierarchy, that even a commoner, somebody who's illiterate, which Huineng represents, somebody who's poor, can, has, has equal endowment in terms of the Buddha Dharma. So he took the robe and bowl, we're told he left, and he practiced for many years um, without teaching. Um, some stories say that he practiced uh, living with hunters, with uh, picking out the meat and just eating the potatoes and vegetables, um, living in obscurity. And this is also an important part of practice. When somebody's made a teacher, there is traditionally this time where they're asked to just live a normal life before teaching to see how their understanding, how their practice holds up under normal circumstances in their life. And so this koan comes at this time when uh, the sixth ancestor makes his way back after many, many years of, of practicing in obscurity. And then um, as he approaches this temple, he sees these two monks arguing about this flag. It is neither the wind nor the flag, he says, but your mind that moves. You could say this was his first teaching. And so we might ask, why is this important? What's going on here? Right? Is this just some sort of philosophical debate? Like, what does this have to do with my life? So we hear in Zen and in Buddhism a lot about mind. A few weeks ago, in our study group on Tuesday nights, we've been reading this book by Norman Fisher, as I've mentioned several times. And he wrote 
an essay called Everything is Made of Mind. And within that essay, he says this. He says, mind is deep, pure, and silent. But when the winds of delusion blow, its surface stirs, and what we call suffering results. So the Buddha taught that everything, that all of our experience is mind. Everything we know about the world, about others, about ourselves, comes to us through our senses, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and through our thinking. And this is what he called the all. The all. In one of the sutras, he was giving a lecture to his monks, and the Buddha said, what is the all? He said, simply, it is the eyes and forms, it is the ears and sounds, the nose and aromas, the tongue and flavors, body and tactile sensations, intellect and ideas. He said, this, monks, is called the all. Anyone who would repudiate this all and insist to describe another all, if questioned, would be unable to explain, he said. And furthermore, would be put to grief because it lies beyond range. I really like this. It causes grief because it lies beyond our range, beyond our direct experience how often we wander outside of our range into the territory of speculation, of concern, of worry, of regret. This is outside of the senses, you could say. And so the Buddha recognized that there is nothing that is purely objective, that nothing that is not conditioned experience. But it's easy, right, to believe, to assume that what we are experiencing is objective. I look out, I see this microphone, this iPad, this stand here in such a simple and direct thing. And yet embedded within that very simple experience of seeing, of touching, of observing, within that, there is the whole world of my experience being brought to bear, my history, my biases, my parents' biases, their parents' biases, everybody they came in contact with to help shape them. So this, what seems like this very direct experience of stand or microphone or iPad or altar is actually quite complicated, complex, laden with many layers 
when we stop and think about it for a moment, we, we can see that all of what we might call reality is deeply conditioned. And so like in the story of the two monks arguing about the flag and about the wind, when we engage in argument, debate, how caught are we in those views? How often do we think that our viewpoint is objective, right, without bias, right? Our notions of right and wrong, of justice, of race, gender, aren't they all conditioned, constantly shifting as society shifts, as we shift, as we age, as new information emerges. I was watching a documentary recently about the largest private landholder in Alaska, this man who inherited all this, not inherited, but bought all this land that was previously used for gold mining. So it was quite disturbed land. And some of the permafrost, as he began to look at it, he he saw these bones poking out. And as he looked closer, he saw many bones. What what turns out is that he uncovered one of the largest or the largest bone depositories from the Ice Age. Hundreds of thousands of bones have he's discovered, pulled out of the permafrost there. And in this discovery, he's finding mastodon and lots and lots of woolly mammoth and American tigers, did you or American lions? Did you know that we had American lions? Mm-hmm. And the scientists who the very few scientists that he's allowed up there are just taken aback. Like, what is this discovery and how it's rewriting history? Species that were previously thought, there's no way they lived in Alaska. Now they're seeing actually they did. If you want to check it out, it's well worth watching. Fascinating. And so just this is just to say that our notions of what we believe, of what is right, what is wrong, what is true, right? What is good, what is bad, that can be so firm, sometimes so entrenched. When we're not able to rewrite our own history, rewrite, to to pull ourselves out of the trench of our own rightness, of our own ideas about things, then we suffer. And so this is why when we're sitting zazen, this practice, the thoughts begin to stir and they become so rooted, repeated, solid. 
This is why we can be so grateful to have a practice, a simple tool like the breath or the awareness or the koan to be able to pull us out, to help us. It's like a hand reaching towards us, pulling us out of this trench of thought. But the thing is, we have to take the hand, right? How often do we take that hand of practice? Most of the time, we just sort of ignore it, right? I like my thoughts. Just... It's because when we're engaged in our minds and our thoughts and we're debating, it's not that we're doing so very lightly. dispassionately, right? It's not like that. We're fully in, right? Body's engaged. The emotions are triggered, right? And so it's even more important to see that when we are debating internally or with other people, it's not just about Right, the right way to put the toilet paper on the holder. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's about us. That's what most arguments are about. We're defending us. That's what we often feel, that we, this we, are on the line. And so all this is important as practitioners of the Dharma because we might ask, how is it that we want to be in this world? Can we be who we want to be, how we want to be, when we're so caught in our right and wrong? And so as practitioners, when we ask, we can ask, you know, how are the most basic experiences of the world, right? Our feelings, our happiness, our contentedness, our stubbornness, our anger, our freedom. How are they being conditioned and determined by believing in the way we see things? And not just the conscious ways that we see things, right? But those very rudimentary processes, these very unconscious processes that are always operating deep, deeply within us, in our background, in our bios. And how those are creating our own experience of the world, right? And one of those that I've, in reflecting on this, that I've, struggled with in the past is really this very strong impulse within me to have an opinion on just about everything, <laughs> you know, a stance. Even when I really did, don't, didn't know anything about something, 
It was just an impulse to have an opinion, right? Often pulling on tangentially related experiences to see if I could come up with some semblance of an opinion, right? But then to ask, like, why is was that the case? You know, is there a fear there? A fear of not having a stance, a fear of not belonging, a fear of not knowing. Some people have the opposite. They have a fear of having an opinion, right? Uh, Never wanting to put themselves out there internally or with other people. Again, why? What's operating that's causing that? Is there a fear there? And so this is to examine. This is all to say that there's some very basic software that's running that we should examine. We should, that is if we want to understand our own pain, we want to understand the nature of our minds, the minds of others, It's not to get to some objective truth, right? This is not the purpose. But to see actually how ideas like objective truth, self and other, right and wrong, are actually part of suffering itself. If I could somehow get to the objective truth of my life, then I won't suffer. See how that itself is suffering. So we have these koans like today that deal in right and wrong, argument back and forth, eliciting in each one of us all of that stuff. In another example, another case from Mulan Khan, many of you know, two groups of monks were arguing. But this time, they weren't arguing about a flag. They were arguing about a cat. We don't know what the nature of their argument was, but we're told they were arguing about a cat. And at that, Nansen walked by. The teacher grabbed the cat by the scruff of the neck, held it up, took out a knife, and said, if you monks can't say a word of Zen then I will cut this cat in two. And the monks said nothing. And so Nansen killed the cat. In another case, Master Fayen sat down to give a talk. He raised his hands and pointed the bamboo blinds Two monks jumped up, rolled them up in the same manner, but Fayen said one has it and one doesn't. Another translation is one gains, the other loses. So what happens when we hear these cases in our minds? How easily do we get drawn in to the the content, to the duality, And how then do we find our way to something deeper, right? If we intellectualize 
in essence, if we talk about abstractly about these things, then of course we miss the point of these teachings. And if we stand back and say, um, well, the way through is to just not get involved, right? then we also miss it. So what do we do? How would we respond? And that is what we have to find out and then practice that over and over and over again. It's quite humbling, you know, to work on koan after koan to see how deeply entrenched the mind of conceptualization actually is. In essence, how deeply our conditioning goes, right? To just, and I think even outside of koan practice, we can all attest to this, how we keep tripping over the same issues in our life and then saying to ourselves, next time is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And then sure enough, <laughs> right back in it. Yeah. This is what Colin work does, but it does it in a very conscious way. And so it also teaches us right a kind of a kind of a patience because you know especially with other people i would say if we're using this practice and we keep stumbling in our koan practice or we're in our just in our general daily life and we are practicing earnestly it builds a patience in us right you can just say something like, well, you know, when they don't get it, when we are really impatient with somebody and they just don't seem to get it, you know, you fill in the blank about who that is in your life. Well, we might just then say, well, sometimes neither do I. <laughs> right? That's all we have to do. I don't get it either a lot of the time. And so what happens over time in working very consciously in this way is that we come to a place where we begin to let go of even the need to know, to be right, to know. Again, of course, this can happen in other ways in our life. We don't have to do formal koan practice, right? Just interacting with people of different backgrounds, of cultures. When we engage in new circumstances and new experiences, we learn that we don't know. I remember I've often, well, not often, but a few times talked about my grandfather on my father's side and when he was when I was a young boy and interacting with him I think he used one of the first you know real bodhisattvas that I encountered and I remember asking him a question I don't remember what the question thinking about this I can't remember the exact question I was asking him but after listening to my question he said he just said um he just said, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, he's my grandfather. Of course, he knows everything, <laughs> you know. 
And I asked him then, I said, why don't you know? Right? Why don't you know? This was before the internet. <laughs> why don't you know? And he just said, he just paused and he said, it's better not to know. It's better not to know. And I really think that this wasn't an avoidance on his part. This was coming out of his long life of experience. Better not to know. Again, it's not about not having opinions or even a direction, moral direction. But it's about how we hold that. Hold it, but hold it lightly. So in the comment for this case, Mulan says this. He says, it's not the wind that moves. It's not the flag that moves. It's not the mind that moves. This part of the, his Momon's comment comes from an earlier story from the ninth century in China from a teacher named Miao Xin. She was, she was a Dharma successor of the great, um, I believe it's Yangshan. And she was, um, put in charge of the guest house of this very large monastery, taking care of guest monks and travelers that were coming through. And we're told that through this story that 17 monks were on pilgrimage together and they came and they wanted to have some lodging. And so they stayed the night. And as they were talking in their room together, they were talking about this encounter with Huineng, the flag and the wind. And as she listened to them debate and talk about their opinions, this is what she said to herself. She said, it's a pity that these 17 blind donkeys have worn out so many pairs of straw sandals on their pilgrimages and still cannot even dream about the Buddha Dharma. Not kind words. <laughs> and a little later, Maoshin's attendant told these monks about her disapproval. But what's interesting about their response was that they didn't become defensive. <clears throat> We're told, in contrary, they, they felt so bad, they felt ashamed that they really didn't understand that they put on their formal robes, offered incense, came to her, made prostrations, and sought her instruction. And so she said, come closer, after they had made their prostration, come closer. And as they stood up and began to walk towards her, she said, the wind is not moving, the flag is not moving, your mind is not moving. So what is she getting at? What's going on? I mean, you know, to understand it a little bit, we might turn back to Huineng's poem. Remember this poem that he wrote when he was a young man about um, 
his own understanding. He said, Bodhi originally has no tree. The mirror also has no stand. From the very beginning, there is not a single thing. Where is there room for dust? No wind, no flag, no mind. These are just concepts, ideas. How do we get beyond concepts? I want to end with a passage from a teacher who is was a Dharma heir of Philip Kaplow, named Albert Lowe, you know, a teacher out of Montreal. He has passed away since, but... Um, he wrote a comment on this koan. And he says at some point in his commentary, he says this, we must distinguish between, quote, that the world is and, quote, what the world is. What the world is, is the world of form, of color, of size and shape. But that the world is, is the world of no form, of emptiness, these are obviously not two different worlds any more than the inside and outside of a cup or two different cups. He says, I can't impress on you enough that you must start with your own certainty. <clears throat> start with your own certainty. With your own feeling about the world and yourself. You must not pretend that the world is empty or that you are not really something, which by the way, a lot of people Buddhists do intellectually, conceptually, I know I'm nothing, right? <laughs> That's just an idea. He says, you have to see into this truth for yourself. If you say, I know I am not something or I know the ego is an illusion, all you are then working with is a set of beliefs and ideas that have no roots, no foundation, no substance, and therefore no value. There is enough to see into without wasting your time learning about Buddhism. Don't waste your time learning about Buddhism. What is he saying? This practice isn't about Buddhism or Zen. It's about investigating the very nature of reality, of yourself, of who and what you really are outside of concepts. We don't need to be Buddhists. He says... It is exactly the same when you are questioning, who am I, which some of you are working on. You must question the belief that you are something. You question it, you doubt it, you ask about it, you want to know. But again, you must start with the belief, I am something. If you pretend that you do not have this belief, if you say, well, I am not something, you have no leverage, no grip. You have already bought into an illusion you have already settled for a conceptual, but this is not good enough. A menu cannot satisfy hunger. You must doubt everything, he says. 
doubt everything. This practice is one of questioning, right down to the foundation. If we're not doing that, we're not practicing Zen. Constantly, consistently, methodically questioning, who is it that is sitting here right now listening? This is important because the world, ourselves, others, are difficult to understand. Such a mystery. That the tendency is to try to know, to come to some kind of knowledge, some sort of belief, right, that we can take refuge in. All of us striving, how can I come to some objective truth about me, about others, about the world. But that's just another way of trying to make things permanent, which we all know is a recipe for disaster. Right? Instead, investigate, move into the mystery itself. Move into the mystery of who you are, of not knowing, into neither wind, nor flag, nor mind. So the question is, how are you going to do that, right? How are you going to do that? So let's uh, stop here and recite the four vows.